Hi, welcome to the CFO Squared podcast, chats about financial and financing optimization. I'm Carl Baker. This podcast is all about business funding, success, and strategy. We're here to help you know how to finance your business. We will also talk about other financial issues impacting your business and ideas to help you succeed and advance your cause. Now let's get into the next episode. Hi, everybody. Carl Baker here again, and it's another episode of CFO Squared, chats about financial and financing optimization. I've been looking forward to this episode. It's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, And I I just want to talk, I talked in the last episode about some uh, real estate financial financing considerations, real estate investing considerations, um, introducing the concepts of lending considerations, the different fact, the different types of real estate that you can invest in and um, how lenders view some of those things. It was kind of high level and I could spend even more time um, looking at some of those in a little more depth if I get some feedback from listeners that they would like some of that, then that would be great. But, and I would be happy to do that, but wanted to, to do a little bit of high level analysis on that. In this episode today, I want to talk about, uh, talk to beginning real estate, real estate investor, residential real estate investors, um, beginning residential real estate investors. Many people, when they're just getting started, you know, they're not, um, they're not buying 280 unit apartment complexes on day one. Uh, I talked to many people that are just wanting to understand, first of all, how to get into the investment market and what tends to happen for many people, including myself, uh, they tend to look at residential real estate, single family homes, uh, condos, duplexes, um, small apartment complexes, et cetera. And so we're just going to talk about that today. Um, I think as you navigate through that, I think you should, first of all, ask why, why do I want to do this? What is my purpose? And understanding that will start to help to crystallize a path for that. Are you seeking cash flows? Are you seeking future gains with appreciation of a building? Are you seeking um, the most cash flows? For example, um, and I'll get to it in a moment, but if you're seeking the most cash flows, that's probably a um, multifamily unit play or a short-term rental financing play, short-term rental vacation property play, as opposed to a long-term um, a series of long-term single family homes, but just understanding what it is you're trying to do. What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, are, are you trying to improve a particular neighborhood? You know, that's a, that's a quality, um, idea, improving particular neighborhoods, um, offering quality housing for uh, people that are in the rental market. 
Uh, I think that's a, a quality mission and vision um, and understanding what the returns would be for, for those, for those criteria, for those, for those ideas. So I, again, I just think it's important to understand the why, because that will help you start to understand what direction you're headed in. Relating to that, then what are your strategies? If you understand your why, uh, what are your strategies? Are you, what are you interested in learning about? Are you interested in fix and flip properties where you're buying a property that's undervalued in a particular neighborhood? Um, and I've used this in past episodes. If other neighborhood um, normal high quality properties are selling for 200,000, but there's a property that is just not up to par, um, run down, needs a roof, deck is falling apart, um, whatever, various things happening. The bathrooms haven't been updated in 40 years, et cetera. That sort of a home is probably not going to sell for $200,000 like the other equivalent um, well-maintained homes. So a person may be able to buy that sort of a property at less than top market value, refurbish it, add the updates, and instantly upgrade the value of the property and either sell it for a higher value, um, you know, closer to that $200,000 in my example, or convert it to a quality long-term rental property. And uh, so is that something of interest to you? Dealing with contractors or doing the work yourself uh, that's a very labor intensive form of real estate investing. And if that's of interest to you, um, then the fix and flip space may be the right scenario. Short term rental vacations have different scenarios that is that involves an intense management of that property in terms of the frequent turnovers, the probably the higher use of the property, meaning um, the property may decline in um, in its uh, in its state. Um, you know, the wear and tear on the property is going to be more intense. Long-term rentals, are you interested in just steady cash flow with the future gain and appreciation uh, for the sale of the property? Uh, many, many people discuss the value of, of um, multifamily homes, multifamily apartment complexes, um, because the, the return for the level of effort tends to be higher um, because, for example, it may not take much more time to manage a six-unit apartment complex than it does a duplex. And yet the um, the the cash flows, all other things being equal, will be three times for a six-unit apartment complex compared to one duplex with two units. So there are many advantages to that. The other thing that you can do to truly have passive income is to participate in a multifamily um, syndication property. So that's the that's something. I'll be honest, I've done a little bit of that. Um, I did it one to make wise use of the money. Uh, the returns tend to be pretty good, and um, you get access to a qualified manager that can give you some ideas about uh, rental property investment. So I actually have done that for purposes of learning from a professional real estate investor their ideas and thoughts on real estate investing. A syndication, if you don't know what that means. 
a syndication is one in which you um, a, a a professional management company will essentially purchase a property, um, and I'll just use high level terms. You know, a, a property may cost fifteen million or a hundred million. Let's just use a hundred million uh, as an example. The property may cost a hundred million dollars. They'll obtain financing from a lender for around eighty million dollars, and they will look to obtain equity uh, funding, partner funding, investor funding for the other twenty million dollars. Put all that together, purchase the property. And uh, for that $20 million uh, investment, which is made up of many, many people, um, those people are receiving a return on their um, aggregate $20 million. Oftentimes, you can put as little as $1,000 in or as much as several million, you know, 50, 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 is quite common. And uh, you put that money in with the hopes that in three to five years, you may, for example, double your money. And over the course of that time, they'll start to return your capital, return your uh, return, uh, make a return on that investment through the profits generated from the from the rents and the activities of the multifamily complex. So that's a very high level summary of the syndication investment uh, approach. Again, it's truly passive. You're not making any decisions on the operations of the property. You're just relying on the the property manager and the uh, developer and the, um, the, the lead partner on um, improving the value. Many times, the, the goal is to buy an undervalued property through some refurbishments. They are able to upgrade the property from, say, a C-level property to a B-level property or B to A, what, as it may be. And, and, uh, and that will increase rents, which will then drive profits. And then eventually in five, seven years, whatever, um, they'll sell that property for a huge gain, and uh, all those investors that put in the aggregate twenty million dollars in my example uh, will receive a large gain, um, and uh, and then they'll be able to take that money and live on it or reinvest it as they desire. So that's again a high level uh, summary of syndication investment syndication. Um, so. Those are those are several so several ideas uh, as strategies as to um, what a beginning investor's options include, and my next comment is just understanding where your money is coming from, and we've talked about that before. All think of this as a business for yourself. This is a investment enterprise for you. You're going to obtain your source of funds from really from five places. Um, I'm going to exclude one of them and call them four. But cash reserves, you're going to obtain your in, your in, your funds for making a down payment, or if you're not wanting to finance funds for the acquisition from your own cash reserves, from friends and family, borrowing or participating with friends and family, 
The third is option is equity. And uh, that means taking on a partner. And there are pros and cons to that. Cons being that you lose some control, you lose some um, some uh, percentage of the ownership and profits and the return. But some people um, want that partnership because they want access to somebody that has either knows what they're doing or maybe they have more funds available. And so there are certainly advantages for taking on a partner in a, in a real estate scenario. Perhaps I've seen many cases where a person will take on a partner. That partner is the money partner. You're the operating partner and the two of you come together and, and uh, secure a real estate investment, or it might be the other way around. Uh, and uh, the fourth source of funding is SBA funding, not applicable in the uh, real estate world, um, by and large. That's not exactly true. Um, you might obtain, actually, that's not true at all, but for in certain real estate scenarios. But in this topic where we're talking about residential real estate investing, um, it's probably not applicable. Then the fifth topic is, or the fifth source from which money comes from is uh, credit cards, unsecured lines of credit. And that can be an incredibly powerful way to obtain funding for down payments and for uh, if you're doing any sort of refurbishment and you're seeking to protect your own cash or you don't have any cash, unsecured lines of credit is a very powerful way to uh, have uh, to to use uh, to have to seek act to, to access funding for um, for advancing those those um, ideas. So that's that's something that's very important to understand. I've talked about it before, but it, it comes up all the time and it's just so germane to any topic about real estate investing and financing. It's just understanding where you are with the four C's. Uh, and, and those four C's, again, are credit, cash flow, collateral, and capacity of borrower. So uh, if you are a person seeking to begin doing some real estate investing, and you have a credit score of 500 as an extreme example, um, you're probably going to need to spend some time repairing your credit and getting your credit to a higher number, uh, as opposed to a person that has an 850 credit score, again, using an extreme. That person, in terms of credit capacity, is uh, well-prepared for uh, beginning their real estate investment uh, exercise. So, credit. Um, understanding the cash flows and being able to know your numbers, understand what the cash flows for that investment property is going to be is very important. Cash flows. Collateral. When I say that, that's obviously at the beginning is really going to be the, um, uh, the acquisition price. Eventually, we can talk in terms, we can talk about how to use the collateral for obtaining funds for purchasing a second and third property. It's called a cash out refinancing. So after a while, when the property appreciates in value, for example, you may have, you may have a debt financing of, let's just say $100,000. You purchase the property for $130,000. Eventually, that property is 
going to become worth, again, just as an example, it's going to become worth $200,000. Well, a lender would allow you to do what's called a cash out refinancing to uh, allow you to borrow probably up to say 75% of the $200,000. So they would allow you to have a mortgage on that property of $150,000. Let's just say, I think I said in the early, early in the example that your property is worth $100,000. You uh, can can essentially pay off that note with your new $150,000 mortgage and you take out $50,000 um, to use for another real estate transaction. That's called cash out refinancing. So I talk about that in terms of collateral and understanding what your collateral is and how to use that collateral for obtaining financing for this acquisition and for future acquisitions. Uh, capacity of borrower is a broad term that I use to talk about what your experience is. Somebody that has purchased 20 real estate properties are going to be looked at differently from a finance, from a lender's perspective and from a financing perspective than somebody that has purchased, that is purchasing their first property. So just understanding that is important to understand, knowing where you are in the spectrum. Somebody that has, has purchased 20 properties in the past and has showed a, a successful enterprise, they're probably all other things going to be being equal, they're probably going to receive slightly more favorable terms for financing than somebody that is purchasing their first property. There's exceptions to everything, but just understanding that capacity and experience. And the other part of that is down payment. Um, and what is what is your down payment? Um, and that's that's another component of the cash of the uh, the four C's of the capacity portion of the four C's. But speaking of down payment, understanding what your sources, where that money is coming from, where are you going to get it? We talked about the five places from which money comes from. Many people think they need to have lots of cash reserves, and that's not necessarily the case. That actually is what holds people up from beginning their investment property exercise, uh, enterprise, and um, uh, venture. Um, but there are places where you can obtain funds to begin uh, that down that uh, the real estate investment investing. Many people are accustomed to the process they use to go through their personal residential mortgage, where the banker is the the mortgage lender is vetting exactly where that money is coming from. They're wanting to understand whether it's borrowed uh, from somebody else or not. And guess what? In the commercial real estate investment um, arena, the lender really doesn't care where the down payment comes from, especially in the uh, alternative space. You can borrow those funds from a home equity line of credit. So in that case, as an example, uh, you're borrowing um, your down payment from your uh, equity in your own personal mortgage, personal residence, and you're borrowing the difference from a lender such that you're obtaining a real estate investment property with basically no money out of pocket. 
You've used the HELOC for your down payment, and you've used a lender for the um, for the uh, um, for the bulk of the acquisition. Put the two together, and you purchase the property with essentially no money out of pocket. So that's an idea. Other things include borrowing from friends and family, uh, taking on a partner, as as we talked about, and um, um, and. The other thing, it, I, I mentioned it earlier, but using uh, a effective business unsecured line of credit program can also be a powerful way to build up an investment portfolio. Um, there are many case studies of, of people using an unsecured line of credit program effectively to, to make use of other people's money to to make down payments on real estate investment properties. Um, so just understanding that is important. Next thing that I want to talk about is um, understanding that difference between personal and business credit and personal and business borrowing. Many people are familiar with their FICO score and what that means. And when I ask you, what's your, what's your, what's your credit score? You know what I'm asking. You're ask, I'm asking for uh, the number that ranges from um, the low 200s, I think, to about 850, depending on the FICO model. Um, it can be as high as 870 in certain, in certain um, FICO models, models, but um, um, when, again, the point is when I ask you what your credit score is, you know what I mean by that. There is a concept of obtaining business credit, um, that the credit rating bureaus will issue for you and, and, and track for you. Dun and Bradstreet has a business credit model called the, uh, Paydex business credit. Um, Experian has one that, uh, that is called the IntelliScore. And those are ratings from zero to 100. 80 on a paydex score is equivalent to approximately, I don't know, it's, there's no real rating, but it's, it's considered a, a quality score. So I put it in the high sevens for a personal FICO score. And that's just my own interpretation. But anyway, the point is that, that there is a concept of building business credit for which you can obtain financings without the money um, being reported on your personal FICO score. That's important as we segue into your approach to lenders looking to look for uh, loans, especially if you go to the banks and there's nothing wrong with it. And there's, um, and it just depends on the strategy that you want to take your financing strategy, but many bankers will, recommend you obtaining a, a conventional personal mortgage for the first few um, the first few um, acquisitions that you make for your investment purposes. So for example, they will allow up to around 10 properties to be purchased using conventional personal mortgages. And the rates will be competitive. The rates will be um, they will tend to be the longer term mortgages with low rates and, and they'll allow you to do that for a handful of homes. And if you're okay with those funds being 
report it on your personal FICO. And if you are okay with um, them being reported on your credit score and, and as you conduct other business in your personal life, like buying cars, perhaps buying another primary residence, buying a true vacation property, et cetera, these properties that you're purchasing for investment purposes will be included in that analysis. People will look at those mortgages and understand whether your current transaction under consideration fits into your credit profile and whether it fits into your debt to income ratios and whether you have in their view too much debt or not. So um, yes, that is an allowable means of financing, but just understand that it, it will be taken into consideration in other personal future, other future personal ventures. I personally take the approach because this is a business exercise for me, this is a commercial enterprise for me, it's an investment. Um, I take the approach, I want as little of that in my personal FICO score, my personal credit profile as possible. Um, I want these to be purchased under an LLC, uh, a limited liability corporation, such that these funds will not report in my personal FICO. Uh, they won't show up on my personal credit score. And I want them because it's economically and intrinsically, these are commercial business efforts for me, and I treat them that way in my financing. So I look for business loans that don't report on my personal uh, credit score. So I think that's important to understand. There's no right or wrong way per se, but it's just understanding what your strategy is, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and uh, and and how those two options fit, um, and it, it's very important to understand that. In in my view, many people will go to a bank, they see the rates, um, and uh, and and they don't understand necessarily that those will report in your personal FICO score. And there are other options that are quite economical. They may not be as economical and as the terms may not be as low as those personal mortgages, but uh, they can be quite economical. And, and in most cases, um, well, my opinion is that in most cases, it's, it's worth it to have a higher interest rate, but keep the, um, keep the, ex, the, the tr transaction as a commercial transaction. Uh, that's, that's just my opinion, and that's why I'm saying it. Um, what are some of the the general terms? Just just ballpark, just high level. What are terms for, let's just say, purchasing a, a residential single family home or a uh, an apartment complex in the commercial space? Well. Um, Again, if you're if you're purchasing that using the personal conventional mortgage, if you've purchased a home, you know about what to expect. Those homes are those interest rates tend to be high twos, low three percent. Maybe they're a thirty-year mortgage because they're in that conventional mortgage space. Um, if you buy 
a single family home in the uh, commercial space at the local bank level, uh, you won't get 30 year fixed rate mortgages. You'll get uh, five year adjusted rate mortgages, arms, five year variable rate notes where they'll be fixed for five years. And at the end of that fifth year, they'll reset based on the current index. And uh, the term, uh, the amortization by which the payment is calculated might be 15, 20, maybe 25 years. Um, in, in the lenders that I represent in the alternative lending space, for example, um, you can, most of those lenders tend to offer 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Very simple. 30-year fixed rate mortgages, very competitive uh, rates compared to um, compared to the five one arms or the ten one arms where rate is fixed for ten years. Uh, if you're wanting to fix the rate for a for a long term, similar to your uh, similar to your um, personal mortgages, I think it's a very legitimate way to go, and it's the way I have personally. Um, uh, gone in my uh, real estate investment is to to seek out that 30-year financing to lock in the rate. Very, very competitive. Um, you know, every scenario is different, but I see uh, for a lot of properties, if you're buying a property over $100,000 or more, um, you know, you can very easily expect to get three and a half Three seven five percent. If your if your credit is is uh, on the high side, um, on the low side, it's still going to be somewhere plus or minus four percent um, rounded. And uh, again, it all just depends on each scenario. But that's that's a, a broad scenario. I think it's the point I'm trying to make is that you can get uh, a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. Right now, in um, you know December of 2021, um, and markets change all the time. But you know it's quite common, plus or minus four percent in the real estate uh, space, and that's that's quite competitive, and um, uh, especially with it being 30-year fixed rate mortgage. But again, my point is just to give you some sense of uh, the options that are out there. Banks will offer rates in the high threes, low fours on a five slash one arm, um, maybe a 10 one arm, but they don't also, it's important to understand they won't give a 30 year amortization. It ten, it'll be, it'll be 15 to 20, maybe 25 years. So the payment will be a little higher because the amortization is uh, the payment is based on a, a shorter time frame, So the payment will be a little higher, but again, um, there are other reasons why the, a person may choose that as an option. And, you know, that's a, okay. Uh, if you're looking to buy a, a fix and flip property, and this is the, the one or two last points that I want to make. If you're looking to buy a, a property where you're, seeking a short-term gain by refurbishing the property and selling it for a gain or converting it to a long-term mortgage. Um, the lenders tend to look at that differently than they do a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Some banks will uh, just look at the, the, total, um, the total 
exercise and give funds uh, all up front. I've heard of the heard examples where the banks will give those funds all up front. So in other words, there's really two parts to a fix and flip. There is the acquisition of the property. In my earlier example, I've, I said the property would be purchased for $100,000. Then there is the refurbishment piece and needing funding for that piece. And so there's two phases to the financing. So some lenders will under, gain an understanding of all of that and just give you one lump sum amount and you have those funds available for the acquisition. And some of the funds will be available for the refurbishment piece. Other lenders will look at those as two different phases. They'll give you, say, 90% of the uh, of the acquisition. So if you're purchasing it for $100,000, they'll give you $90,000. You would need to come up with $10,000 in some way, either from your own cash reserves, or as I've said, building an effective unsecured line of credit program to borrow that $10,000. And then, uh, and then you would begin the process of, sorry, you may have heard a dog barking there. Um, begin the process of uh, doing the refurbishments and the lender will um, uh, provide those funds for the refurbishments either. uh, Generally, if they're doing it on a phase basis like this, as opposed to giving all the money up front, they'll do it on a, a reimbursement basis. But the important thing to understand is that the lender will give in the, um, the fix and flip lender, um, will give a hundred percent of the refurbishments. And then, uh, they'll do that on an interest only basis, um, in, in the non-bank lending scenario. Well, they'll give you a fund that you'll, you'll be paying interest only as you draw down on the fund, especially on the, the rehab piece. Uh, it's interest only, only on the amount that you've drawn down, the acquisition plus the, the drawdown. And, uh, and that minimizes your repayment. You're not making full principal and interest payments uh, from the very beginning. And you're also not paying interest on money that you haven't used yet that's just sitting in the bank. So there are advantages in my mind to taking that approach um, and, uh, and it, and those types of funds can be, uh, secured pretty quickly in a matter of a few weeks. And, uh, you can then, you know, use that to begin your fix and flip exercise. Again, other banks take different approaches. They'll give you all the money up front and you begin paying principal and interest and uh, on the full amount, even though it's sitting in the bank and you haven't used it, um, and there may be reasons for doing that, and that's and that's another option as well. I'm going to end on other things to consider. Remember, this whole thing. I hope it's still resonating. That this is all about uh, a be- helping a beginning investor understand how to get started. And so, the the last thing that I want to talk about is what are other ways to get things done? And I I want to just talk about if if the direct management of these properties or using a management company, and it's important to understand the options there 
Um, because you, if you are going to use the management, a management company that will involve some costs and you'll need to under, you'll need to take those costs into consideration when evaluating the cash flows of the property and, uh, understanding again, in the realm of the four C's, one of them being cash flows, understanding the, the costs of using a management company, but also the, in, in all cases, there are pros and cons, to directly managing or using a management company. And it just depends on your why, what you're wanting to do, um, how you're wanting to, to, to do this, where the property is, et cetera. Um, and I'll just say that it's probably obvious, but if you're truly wanting this to be a passive exercise, then you're probably going to need to hire a management company because you don't want those two in the morning, um, I need a plumber phone calls, but management companies are set up to do that properly, uh, handle that efficiently and effectively. So anyway, just another thing to think about in terms of what you're going to do once you own the property is uh, that how to, how to manage the property. I'm going to end with that. Hope this makes sense. Hope this gives you some ideas. Um, I guess I would also just say at some point, and I had to do this myself at some point, um, figure out a path, figure out a strategy. If you think it's right for you, at some point, you've got to just move forward. Many people and other people and other podcasts say the same thing. People get um, stuck with analysis paralysis and they just don't do anything. I think it's important to keep your feet moving. And eventually, if, you're, if you really think it's right for you, Make some decisions and move forward. Find a mentor if you need to. I think that's important, actually. Find a mentor, find some training, and but ultimately move forward with it. So um, best wishes with that. Reach out if you have any comments, questions, if you have some ideas of things you'd like to talk, like us to talk about. And um, just move forward and, and, uh, and use wisdom and, and best of wishes with that. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. And this concludes the latest episode of CFO Squared Chats about financial and financing optimization with Carl Baker. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave us some notes or comments or questions by reaching out to us via email or phone number. Our contact information is in the show notes, and we would be glad to try to answer questions, take your notes, questions, and comments into consideration for future episodes. Until next time, signing off. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.